morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the 2020 general election edition of Ask a Voter. The polls are open. Millions of you have already voted. The rest of you, step up. Today, we'll be checking around battleground states. Ion Sancho in Florida, Sue Jones in Wisconsin, Jane Corist in North Carolina, and Sharon Enrichlieb in Arizona. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. My first guest is Ion Sancho, former supervisor of elections of Leon County, where Florida's state capital, Tallahassee, is the county seat. Ion cut his teeth on election meltdowns as a third year law school student in 1986, and then posted quite the 28 year career, which includes the infamous Gore v. Bush 2000 election, whereas a nonpartisan Ion Sancho was chosen to lead the Florida hand count of ballots in dispute in Miami-Dade County. Besides being referenced in Greg Palast's The Best Democracy That Money Can Buy, Ion has also appeared on National Public Radio, BBC, New York Times, Washington Post, St. Petersburg Times in the 2006 documentary Hacking Democracy, and in the recent specially entitled Kill Chain, The Cyber War on America's Elections. Ion Sancho continues to cast his eagle eye over election integrity and tweets like a man every bit still on the mission. He's a veritable oral history project, knowing where most of the bodies are buried or still moving around. We are very fortunate to have him with us today. He comes to us from his home in Tallahassee. Welcome to Ask a Voter, Ion Sancho. Thank you very much, Claudia. It's a pleasure to appear on your program, and thank you for such a warm and genuine introduction. You're right. Election integrity and things election is my passion. I'm still involved as much as I can be, trying to provide accessible elections, making sure to warn citizens about the pitfalls that may reside in the process, and there are many. Although I will immediately say that Florida has made tremendous improvements since the disaster of 2000. And I'm going to get to one of the ones that was sort of corrected in 2018. But first, I want to ask, when did you first register to vote? And what were the circumstances at that time? Well, I was a frustrated teenager, I'll tell you that, because my personal life has been shaped by the Vietnam War and the Civil Rights Movement. And in 1968, when I graduated from high school, the law was that you had to be 21 to vote. And I had been organizing, I had been working with others, teaching in different groups, and was very much an anti-war activist. And the fact that I could pay taxes, but I couldn't vote. I had no say. I could be sent to war. I could be drafted, as I eventually was. And I had no say in the policies that would send me there. And that rankled me, because as a student of history, I, my father steeped me in the traditions of good governance. My middle name, I have to confess, is Voltaire. Yes. My father was somewhat of a philosopher. And so the idea that there is a civil government that respects free speech and the opinions of others is something that I adopted as a good way to view the operation of our American system and how it should work. 
history has forced me to look at this entire journey that we're on as an arc toward fulfilling the ideals that were established in our founding documents. You know, that woman that asked Benjamin Franklin on the Philadelphia steps, what have you wrought after that constitutional convention earned a smart retort, a republic if you can keep it. I've seen um, that refrain, but I didn't know the context of how he was asked. I didn't know if that was in the middle of a document, but that was a conversation and that's an important context. It was because I will tell you that the entire constitutional proceeding was secret by design. They didn't want to inflame people. They didn't want to have any political pressure on the people who were writing the document. So they required and all agreed that there would be no published notes or reports issued from that body as to their deliberations. And there's only one exception to that, an incredible exception, I would tell you. And it's important, I think, to understand how far we've gotten far away from not only understanding the full meaning of Benjamin Franklin's statement, but the fact that this only surviving document from the constitutional debate was a letter that Benjamin Franklin had written to all the members. And the reason why it survived is because he was ill and not able to himself give this speech. So he gave a copy of it to another member and that copy has survived. And what he warns everyone in this convention is that they believe themselves and their system represents truth. But then he, he reflects on the fact that the older he has lived in this world, and he was an ancient individual at 82, he was probably 30 years beyond the average lifespan of a colonist at that time. So in fact, what he did was try to disabuse people of the fact that they possess the truth that in fact, that they should be humble enough to know that in fact, when you have several people with opposing views saying that they're the truth, it really tells you, and you should be humble enough to realize it, that none of you possess the truth. That we should set aside our personal prejudice and do what is best for the nation. As he himself, by the way, set aside his personal preference and most people don't know this because we've kind of whitewashed this element of history. But Benjamin Franklin came to the convention with the priority of abolishing slavery. And he quickly realized with the predominance of delegates from slave-owning states that if he held to that position, there would be no constitution. So he set aside his primary purpose and principle to essentially craft something that quite frankly is inspiring to me, the belief that we are on a journey to a more perfect union. That's incredibly inspiring to me. And that journey requires justice. And elections is where that the concepts of democracy that are idealistic meet the road of democracy. That's the concrete element. And I might journey back to say this, the Constitution is the head of our government, the brain, but the heart of it is the Declaration of Independence, our statement that we made directly to Great Britain about why we had to do this. And in that, it says that a just government is dependent upon the will of the governed. That's critical. This statement is why we implicitly say elections have to be fair, they have to be accessible, and one of the things that I can say today without any fear of contradiction is because we do not allow all of us, the governed, to participate, 
that has contributed to why we do not have a just government in much of the country. Because the issue is not government, it's governance. And that Franklin pointed that out in that letter that I referred to earlier. It's the people in the process that will determine how the process works. And what we've done today is conflate the idea that government is bad and fail to divorce that critical element, which is critical for understanding why we should vote, that it's those who govern the governance of the process that is the all important critical element here. And it's led us to make huge mistakes like term limits in Florida, which we've had since 1992 and has been a complete disaster more pay to play than we had before. People are gone quicker, so you have to make the deals quicker. You need to make the money faster. It's completely distorted the system. But we keep wishing for a magic bullet. If we could just tweak the system one way, it'll get better. I'm sorry, we have seen the enemy and they is us. We are the problem. We are failing to elect people who are honest, people who believe that there is such a thing as a public service or a public good, even though our constitution is replete with the words general welfare as critical element of the process of our governance. We need to look at the general welfare of this nation. And instead today, unfortunately, we've devolved into tribalism, attacking each other as enemies, which is a sad commentary on how we're going to survive the next few years. My guest, he's Ion Sancho, now retired supervisor of elections, Leon County, Florida, who, as you can readily see, remains a formidable commentator on election integrity and just the whole body politic. When, Ion Sancho, did you and how did you vote in this 2020 election? Well, I'll tell you that, unfortunately, I have an immunosuppressive a suppressive disease that was diagnosed in June. So I've had to be very careful. I asked for a vote by mail ballot to be sent to me in the primary. And once I received it, I filled it out and dropped it off in one of the required vote by mail drop boxes that we have in the state of Florida. Every early voting site is required to have at least one drop box. And so I was able to drive There was no one in front of me. There was an attendant who reminded me to make sure that the envelope was signed because in Florida, one third of all the ballot rejections are because the voter has failed to sign that affidavit envelope that they're mailing the ballot back, which is a good service to have, but I had signed it. And so he allowed me to drop it myself into the vote by mail drop box and I was gone. And the process took minutes. In the general election, I had neglected to ask for a vote by bail ballot. I thought I had, but I didn't. And so I knew that once the vote by mail ballots have been delivered by the printer to the supervisor of elections office for the gigantic initial mail out, which occurred on the weekend of the 24th and the 25th, that the supervisor of elections office would have the electronic PDFs of all the ballot styles. So I just simply walked into the office, asked for them to print me out a vote by mail ballot. I filled it out, voted, and dropped it in the vote-by-mail box that was inside the facility. No line. And so what I did was a counter vote, walking into the supervisor of elections and voting over the counter by vote-by-mail ballot. And that's how I voted in November. So you were saying things 
have been improving over the years. I guess I want to use the kind of poster moment for Florida, and maybe we'll have an opportunity to talk about improvements made prior to that. But in Florida's 2018 general election, Proposition 4 re-enfranchised a larger share of felons who had served their time, 66%, I believe, approval. Did you see the messy situation coming given Governor DeSantis's partisan portfolio and the composition of the state legislature trying to walk back that popular proposition for? Yes, I had predicted uh, from the very beginning of the legislative session that the Republicans in control of the Florida legislature would in fact do this. I am no stranger to what I would call Florida's voter suppression. We are actually the model for much of the voter suppression activities, which goes across the country, all across. We are the generator of that. And in fact created, so being no stranger to that, I had actually been interviewed before the session and predicted that this would occur. The Florida constitution allows the legislature to essentially put context to the constitutional amendment and they were going to do everything they could, including expanding the traditional definition of completing one sentence to ensure that the bulk of these individuals would not be able to participate in our election. But I'd like to just stop right there because I'd like to say what this really is. Because we adopted that provision in 1868, Claudia. This is Florida's introduction to the Jim Crow era, which is historically identified as beginning a little bit later. But again, Florida was one of the initial states to understand that by defranchising the citizens, they could control the populations. And so all the law enforcement authority was sent down to the sheriffs on a county level and removed completely at the state level so that the representatives who many of them were African-American would not be able to control the culture of the communities. And these individuals had the power to arrest individuals for nuisance crimes. Actually, what that meant was African-American former slave being downtown in the public. That was a nuisance. They would arrest you. And that's the genesis of why we have a law that says if you are convicted of a felony, you lose your rights forever. It was rooted in slavery. It was rooted in an effort to make sure that none of these individuals that had been former slaves would be able to change the chain of American apartheid that had been now essentially concretized in the American South. And to me, whether the animus is racial or political, these remnants really need to be removed if we are going to fulfill the words that we are taught to say as children, that we in fact indeed are one nation with liberty and justice for all. This is unfair and the Florida legislature has showed their hand, but they've done that over and over and over again. In 2008, for example, when candidate Obama won the presidency, it was discerned that 56% of all African-American votes in that record turnout were actually voted on in early voting centers, not on election day and not vote by mail. And so the Florida legislature, without any input from the Republican Secretary of State, who said he was completely blindsided by the legislation, which was introduced by the party to limit early voting and make sure that African-Americans could not vote 
on the most popular early voting day, the Sunday before the Tuesday election. And the Republicans did that in 2010. The Republicans attempted to put in an illegal purge, which fortunately for them, the supervisor of elections revolted in the state of Florida because we had been through that experience in 2000 when the Division of Elections supplied erroneous lists of supervisor of elections around the state, which led to more than 10,000 African-Americans being disenfranchised, a story that was completely missed by the media coverage of the 2000 elections. That's why I brought up Greg Palast in your introduction, because he caught that. He actually he created a domain that mimicked the, the Bush legit domain, and he was able to get so much data, but his own findings were not published in any of the mainstream platforms here. But he did get that out. But back to your point. Well, no, it's just that these lists, again, this is just evidence of how the Republicans, and I keep saying that because most people must understand that in the state of Florida, the Republicans captured both houses in the governor's office by 1998. That's 22 years of solid, complete Republican executive and legislative control with no input from Democratic members, which quite frankly made a number of the best Democratic candidates jump to run for other offices. Buddy Dyer from Orlando became the mayor of Orlando. A number of these individuals ran for local office to run for the position of mayor, as opposed to just spin their wheels and not being recognized by the Republicans in control, particularly the House. The House is very disrespectful to anyone who doesn't share their opinion. They do things such as cut off debate with only 30 seconds per individual who had been waiting in a crowd for three hours to provide testimony. Sometimes they don't call people at all if they don't like your testimony. It's really a very, very authoritarian process to watch how the Republicans have controlled the Florida legislative process, in effect, created laws that have no checks and balances at all. So again, that's one of the reasons why we have become the generator of voter suppression tactics in the country. And it's an unfortunate fact. You know, 2000 has had many, many aftershocks, and that's one that is continuing to reverberate. And quite frankly, is one that is, I think, led directly to our president. President Trump, to me, is an outgrowth of the kind of activity and animosity and belief that you can do and say anything as long as you win. And I think from the 2000 election to President Trump, I can draw a straight line. So I want to know, Ion Sancho, if 2020, if it looks like both 2000 and 2016, or is it just, it looks more like 2000. It seems like both, there are parallels, threads that come from both of those rather consequential elections. Well, there are. And in Florida, we've learned from every mistake that we've made. And, and, you know, unfortunately, sometimes it takes making mistakes to do the right thing. I think we have the infrastructure to handle the record number of vote by mail ballots that we're seeing right now. And quite frankly, at, at 8.2 million voters having voted or 9.2, I might be corrected. I, I haven't looked at the data in, in the last 30 minutes, but a tremendous number of our citizenry of the 14 million plus registered voters have voted and we still have the busiest day of early voting left and all election day. And unless we have a drastic tail off, 
we're going to break a record in terms of voter turnout here in the state of Florida. And that's a good sign because even though individuals have had their rights to vote suppressed, that has not dampened the enthusiasm, particularly among younger Americans. Younger voters are doing their job in this election in more ways than one because younger Americans have had to step forward to become the poll workers that we needed to ensure that a critical element of President Trump's plan to disrupt the elections could not be fulfilled. Based upon what happened in Wisconsin in the primary season, we saw essentially voter suppression by 10-hour waits in line, by refusing to open up enough accessible voting, including voting by mail and drop-off locations, And I think rather than that being the rule in November, which I think the president was hoping for, younger Americans have stepped forward and filled those slots, except for a few jurisdictions who still need individuals. But for the most part, we're not going to be able to anticipate the super long lines that many thought would be the biggest part of the problem of Election Day. And I don't think that's going to be the biggest part of the problem on Election Day now. The 20... 18 elections led to reforms in technology in the state of Florida and changed some supervisor of elections. Again, it's the governance of the office and the supervisor of elections in Broward County, quite frankly, I I was saddened when I heard that she would run for re-election. That was just, I I did not understand why. Going into 2018. Um, Yes, uh, I just, you know, she ran for re-election in 2016 and was re-elected, I think at age 76. And that office has had a series of problems, failure to properly store ballots, failure to hire enough staff to do the job that it required to be done. And Broward is a huge jurisdiction. Broward is larger than some states in terms of their voter turnout. So finally, that individual has been removed. I think proper administration has been restored. Miami-Dade has had problems with voter suppression in terms of their early voting locations. The uh, Miami Heat had offered and had been agreed to be an early voting center in Miami-Dade, for example. And what happened was that the mayor, Carlos Jimenez, who was a Republican running for open seat, after the site had been selected as an early voting site, wrote an email to the director of elections saying, we need to talk about that. The offer was rescinded. And now the citizens have been forced to vote in a museum with traffic problems and parking problems, with handicap access, which is not directly accessible from the main street. And the delicious irony of it all is because there's not enough parking at the Frost Museum, they've been directed to go to where? To the uh, American Airlines uh, Stadium where the heat play, which is where they should have been in the first place. Except for, once again, politicians putting their fingers on the scale of justice and are trying to essentially manipulate the process so that they gain a personal or partisan advantage. So we're recording this on October 31st. So the numbers such as, which I and Sancho mentioned, how many, 9.2 million voters have already voted. That number will be a different number on election day, the day this is being broadcast. So I have more questions than I have time to fit into this one show. Our last wrap up question is, The 66% of voters that approved of the Proposition 4, those are the people that are consuming the services of administering this election in 2020, among other voters. 
are they seeing through the confusion that the state legislature, that the national leadership is trying to foment and stoke? Do the voters, in your estimation, do they understand the score and they're finding out how to make this work for them as the governed and getting toward better governance? I think 2016 awoke a lot of citizens to things that they hadn't been aware of. And I think this entire Trump administration has awakened a sense of understanding for the first time the dimension of institutional racism, which is really in the heart of the voter suppression efforts that exist. Institutional racism has been inherent in our society for such a long time, but this generation has understood it the marches, the demonstrations, the I think at a level I've never seen before has contributed to this huge, huge turnout that we're seeing not only in Florida, but nationwide. Right. Florida, California, and Texas are turning out voters at such a, a clip no one has ever seen before. Of voters of every stripe, African-American, Cuban, Ecuadorian, Venezuelan, Puerto Rican, we're seeing them all participate. And the numbers to me, are telling me that, that in fact, this upwelling in participation, I think, comes with the understanding that after this election, it doesn't end. That, in fact, understanding that in 2008, by electing Obama, and then he was completely frustrated for eight of those 10 years by Mitch McConnell and a Senate that would pass nothing, I think has now reawakened people to the complete understanding that once you have the executive branch, you must follow through you must work on those legislative seats. You must work on those congressional seats. You must apply the standard of justice for all to every election. And I think we're going to be more active. And so I'm hopeful that what we're seeing is in some ways a counter swing to the last three and a half years plus of the Trump presidency. Well, this has been such long awaited pleasure. Ayan Sancho, thank you for all the time you're giving us before you must get back to your 80-page legal brief to review. Thank you so much for your time today on Ask a Voter. Thank you very much, Claudia. America, vote. My guest was Ayan Sancho, now retired supervisor of elections in Leon County, Florida. He is what I would call an oral history project that I'd love to do, a much longer interview. I hope, Ion, we can do about election integrity and where all the bodies are buried, figuratively speaking. Can we do that? Yes, we can. Okay. I'd love to do that. Claudia. Okay. Thanks so much. My next guest will be Sue Jones calling it in from Madison, Wisconsin, and Jane Kors from Durham, North Carolina. back to Ask a Voter, Election Day 2020. My next guests are Sue Jones and Jane Corris. Sue Jones was formerly a water quality program manager. We can say for the state now that you're retired, right, Sue? That is correct. Sue returns for, I believe, the third time. Jane, this is her first time. She's the open space and real estate manager at Durham County, North Carolina government. We three have a shared background in the urban planning program at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. As we were being socialized into professional planning careers, 
in the early 1980s, we witnessed with a particular dread how the Reagan administration week by week was picking off urban strategies and environmental protection. Justice Neil Gorsuch's mom, Anne, was environmental protection agency chief for a brief spell. The Sagebrush Rebellion messed with habitat and resources all over federal lands in the West. Upon completion of their degrees, Sue set up a career in local and state government, and Jane has built a career in environmental planning and project review in city and county government in Durham, North Carolina. Their locations fit them neatly in closely watched battleground states. Our coverage of their voter stories will reflect a grasp of policy and consequences of who holds elected office. I'll submit more compellingly than your broken record talking heads or focus group fence sitters. Sue comes to us today from her home in Madison, Wisconsin, and Jane, her home in Durham, North Carolina. Welcome to Ask a Voter, Sue Jones and Jane Correst. Thanks, Claudia. Glad to be back on KUCI. Glad to be joining you. Well, I have to open up. Sue has given us her background a little bit on when she first registered the circumstances at that time. So I'm going to, in the interest of time, let's go to Jane. Briefly, Jane, tell us when did you first register to vote and the circumstances at that time? Well, when I first registered to vote, I was an undergraduate student at University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. The dorm that I lived in was such a large dorm that we were actually our own voting precinct. Wow. Was the Jimmy Carter Ronald Reagan election was the first presidential one that I got to vote in. And of course, we all know how that one played out. So my very first opportunity to really be involved at the national level, it was a resounding victory for the Republicans. Yes. Do we all remember that night, 1980? So, well, then I want to ask now both of you, because of the nature, the whole setting in 2020. It's not just why you're voting today. And we're recording this on October 31st. Things will change between now and broadcasting on 11-3. So I want to ask you both, when and how did you vote? And then why did you vote? We'll start with Sue. So I voted early. Our municipal clerk in Madison has found lots of ways to provide many opportunities for people to vote. And so she created this year Democracy in the Park and offered both on September 26th and October 3rd opportunities in every park in Madison. That's over 200 locations for people to drop off their ballots. So Deb and I rode our bikes down to Quaker Park and then continued for a while along Lake Monona's shore after dropping off our ballots. So since I had the privilege of you on a bike ride some falls ago, we went right by your Senator Tammy's house. Is that polling place near her home? No, this is much closer to my home on the east side of Madison. But her closest park location would have been just a couple blocks away for her, too, with over 200 locations. Wow. And why are you voting in 2020? Oh, my gosh. I want the daily outrage and anxiety to end. I vote my values. I always do. And my values are truth, transparency, women's leadership, respect for all genders and sexual orientation, environmental stewardship, 
competent leadership, civil discourse and respect for the other. None of that has been valued by this administration. So I want it to end and I want us to move on to actually solving problems. Thank you. Jane, can you tell us when, how you voted, and then I'll ask back to why you voted, you're voting this general election. Sure, so in Durham County, we have early voting and I'm very happy that we have expanded our early voting hours to really try to make it easy for everybody during this pandemic to do early voting. Our early voting started on Thursday, October 15th and it ends today. So there's been over two weeks from eight in the morning till 7.30 at night. The first couple of days there were long lines. My family and I, we went and voted on a Saturday night at 6.30 p.m. Our local, we have a website where you can look at what are the wait times at the 14 different early voting sites. And we realized the wait times had really gone down because 6.30 on a Saturday night is not a hot time to go vote. So we went and voted and actually had no, no wait. So that was a really great experience. And I'm really pretty proud that our county has done what they can to expand and make it as easy easy as possible for all voters, including Sunday evening hours until 7.30. So both of your experiences bring up the aspect of the importance of local leadership, because we know that from for statewide, there's a lot of resistance to enfranchising everybody to make it as easy as possible to vote. So it seems like you may have a sort of a blue local leadership that's giving as much opportunity as possible in Madison, surrounded by Wisconsin, in Durham, surrounded by North Carolina. Is that fair to say? Yes, Durham is a very progressive community and we're very supportive of trying to ensure that everyone, regardless of your socioeconomic background, has an opportunity to vote. And we have tried to make it as easy as possible. For instance, with our mail-in voting, we have drop-off sites. We have a way to go online and ensure that your ballot's been received. And we actually have just about hit our 2016 voting amounts today just with early voting alone. Oh, excellent. So yeah, here in Madison, uh, of course, our municipal clerk is nonpartisan, but has done everything possible to expand voting opportunities. We are a blue city. We're the state capital. And, you know, it was discouraging to see that the Republican leadership of the legislature, both houses are controlled by Republicans, asked the city to call off democracy in the park, just as they tried to disenfranchise people and just kick them off the voter rolls without notification in other parts of Wisconsin. So we are holding strong, but there are challenges to voting across the state, unfortunately. So I'm hoping that the message comes through for people to appreciate, make the connection with down ballot participation. I've interviewed so many local candidates in Southern California, in Orange County particularly, and I've interviewed a lot of student activists who it was difficult to make the case for a little bit for voting, but voting down ticket when they had so much skin in the game with breaking leases and all that kind of thing. So with election administration, this really does reinforce the point that we can't stop at federal elected positions on our ballot. We need to go all the way down for everybody to have the best possible leadership and administration. 
for those of you who've just joined us, Ask a Voter is what I've changed Ask a Leader to. My guests are Sue Jones calling in from Madison, Wisconsin, and Jane Korsk from Durham, North Carolina, both states upon which the nation turns its exhausted looks on the battleground states. So I wanna start with Jane. Can you tell us how confused are the people in your sphere with all of the federal judicial rulings on when, how, and if all of the voting regulations in North Carolina? Well, I think the effect really depends on your location. I mean, I can share that our congressional district we have not been in the same congressional district consistently over the past 15 years. We've been in a different district every single time we have voted based on, you know, the different court outcomes and the way redistricting has happened. But what I really see, and Sue was talking about, you know, her very progressive community of Madison, Durham County is interesting because when we're in the central location, it's very progressive. I think people are going to be very committed to doing whatever they need to do, both up and down the ballot. But as soon as you get out of the urban area, there are portions of our county that are very rural and really mirror the more rural conservative voting that we find in our less populated counties. So while Durham's large numbers look like we're very progressive, there is an absolute dichotomy in our county between the rural and the urban areas. That's really, really interesting. And you you can see it. You can see it yeah. just when you're out um, the signage and the signage from when you're in town to when you get out in the countryside. And I work closely with rural landowners and right. it's very clear. A number of them are very conservative. Sue? We also have um, our urban areas in Dane County, where I live, and in Milwaukee County. Traditionally, larger urban populations, traditionally blue. But we have an interesting record more recently in Wisconsin. And I think, uh, although some people in rural Wisconsin are not wearing masks and maybe not as concerned about going to the polls on election day, I, I think you know we've been hard hit and we're surging right now. It's scary. And so, and we had that situation in April with our, our mm-hmm. primary, presidential primary, where we also, though, elected a progressive Supreme Court justice uh, against the incumbent who had in, been endorsed by Donald Trump. So that was a statewide election. Jill Karofsky won by 10 percentage points over the Trump-backed conservative. So I think we've seen some questions about leadership that may be prompting people to reconsider even in the the rural conservative areas of Wisconsin. And talk about the extent to which people might be confused, the voters in your midst, confused about what's the score with all of, there've been so many challenges from within Wisconsin of what the terms for the election infrastructure should be processing like. There have, and there was just the Supreme Court decision just this week, I think, that said that Wisconsin votes must be counted on election day and would not, even if they were in the mail, would not be allowed to be counted if they arrived after election day. So I think the message 
throughout for those of us who want to make sure that every vote gets in, despite the swirling court cases and challenges, has been vote early. Don't rely on the possibility of an extension. So that turns out to be have been really good advice. Are there any interesting local races that are making, <laughs> that cause for even more people to sort of put their energy into this election? Well, across the state, we have been pretty well gerrymandered. And so it is important to give our Democratic Governor Evers more people who will work with him in the legislature, but I think that's going to be hard. I I suspect that we will pick up some assembly seats, but the Senate, because of gerrymandering, is a tougher challenge. But I hope that with the census results that um, we can have more of a movement toward fair maps, but with gerrymandering, I'm, I'm not sure that we're going to get there in this election. Well, before I ask Jane to answer that too, how were your census tabulations? Do you have a good estimate of the actual, not the the one that's rolling out there saying we we made 99% compliance. Do you have an idea that most noses were counted, Sue, in the state of Wisconsin? Yeah, sorry, I don't. It's hard to know. That information, yeah. And that's an indicator of the kind of lack of transparency, a factor that you say (laughs) makes you vote every year. So Uh Jane, tell us about, are there any kind of, Local races, I mean, some of those people are your bosses, right? (laughs) They're at Durham County. So for Durham County, uh, our local elections were pretty much decided in the primary back in March Mm. because there is not a Republican slate of candidates. So we have known who our candidates were going to be since March. So we did have a very hot, contested election back in the spring just for who was going to be the Democratic candidates, but it's been decided. Now, I did want to just go back and make a comment about the confusion about sort of mail-in voting. And I I wanted to share, so, you know, I've been asking sort of all my friends and associates and and kind of neighbors about who's voted early and who's done men. I can tell you that three quarters of the people that I have talked to said they chose to do early voting so that their votes were not going to be in the mix with the mail-in ballots. The ones who did do mail-in ballots, particularly if that family had any pre-existing conditions or were immunocompromised, most of those actually said that they did mail-in voting, but they chose to deliver their ballots to the Board of Elections. So there was no question about whether it makes it through the Postal Service. There was a lot of concern with everything we've been hearing in the news about how the Postal Service has been affected and folks did not want to have to worry about whether their ballot made it through or not. And do you have an idea of how fully North Carolinians have been counted in the census, Jane? I can't speak for all of North Carolina, but I know in Durham County, our county was very concerned because we were not doing as well as we had hoped. There were estimates that we were only at about 65% in terms of responses. We were doing some very active campaigns of getting out into the community to try to increase participation. We have a very large Hispanic part of our community, and there were definitely concerns about undercounts based on fears about what would be done with that information. Wow. Well, Sue Jones, 
And Jane Kors, this has been such a pleasure. You've given us such insight we wouldn't have. This kind of news isn't traveling with all the drama going on in the obvious places. So I really thank you for giving us your valuable time and Jane for adding one more Zoom session to your work week. <laughs> You're welcome, I enjoyed it. Thanks a lot, Claudia. Always great to be here. Thank you. My guests were Sue Jones from Madison, Wisconsin, and Jane Kors from Durham, North Carolina. Stay tuned, listeners, with my last guest for today's Ask a Voter show, San Diego residents Sharon and Richard Lieb calling it in from Arizona, monitoring election sites. to ask a voter. My final guests today are San Diego attorneys, Sharon Rosenlieb and Rich Lieb, reporting their voter stories from Arizona. Sharon Rosenlieb is a columnist at the San Diego Jewish Journal and a former deputy attorney general. Her work has appeared in the Los Angeles Times, Jewish publications throughout California, The Forward, NPR's California Dreaming Series, and the anthology Seder Stories. She's appeared in two documentary films discussing the life of her great-grandfather, Saul Wurzel, a Hollywood movie producer who developed the talents of iconic luminaries in the business. My other guest is Rich Lieb, Sharon Rosenlieb's husband. He is currently president and CEO of Done Their Strategies, a San Diego-based consulting firm. Before that, Rich Lieb was an executive vice president general counsel for Liquid Environmental Solutions. Prior to his work with Liquid Environmental, he served as executive vice president and general counsel of U.S. Public Technologies and co-founded the investment management group at Stone & Youngberg. Rich Lieb currently serves on the California Board of Regents. Previously, he served on the Community College Board of Governors from 1999 to 2005. They are both coming to us today from Chandler, Arizona. Welcome to Ask a Voter, Sharon Rosenlieb and Rich Lieb. Thank you, Claudia. Thank you for having us. Well, tell us first when each of you first registered to vote and the circumstances at that time. Well, maybe I would start. I am 64 years old. So I started when I was very young. I got a political bug in me at a very young age. And as a matter of fact, I still remember today that my grandmother for my birthday bought me a license plate for my bike that said LBJ 464. So that was uh, when I started. And I was involved in politics long before I registered to vote, but was eagerly awaiting the opportunity to vote, which is what I did in 1974. So anyway, yeah, I've been involved in politics and a lot of presidential politics and been a, a passion of mine. And actually for 10 years, I worked as a political fundraiser for various Democratic candidates in and around the west side of Los Angeles, which included Congressman Henry Waxman, Howard Berman, and then controller, and then eventually Governor Gray Davis. Sharon? I first voted in the 1980 election, which is when I turned 18, for Jimmy Carter. And unfortunately, he did not prevail. So I grew up, came of age during the Reagan years. And I'm just curious, when you voted in 1980, were you on the West Coast? Yes. 
Do you remember, I'm gonna pull off scab for both of us is that Jimmy Carter conceded to Ronald Reagan in 1980 before the West Coast polling places. Yeah. I do remember that. And that was controversial. Well, I was, was actually canvassing during that time. And I remember walking door to door to people trying to get out the Democratic vote in 1980 with, you know, the TVs blaring at every house I stopped at to tell us that Ronald Reagan had won and Jimmy Carter had already conceded. Okay. And as a descendant of a Hollywood family, yes, we were all depressed that an actor had won the presidency and the implications of that. And that's not, that's both funny and awful in one sense. Correct. Okay, I sense that, okay. So let's then ask both of you, how did you vote and when did you vote? Because in 2020, the oh. how is like one of the big leading stories. So, uh, you know, I think both of us voted absentee, partly because we knew we were going to be in Arizona on Tuesday. But actually, I've been an absentee voter for quite a while. Did you use a drop box? Did you go to the counter? Did you use the mail? I took both of our ballots to the Solana Beach Library. And I generally like to vote in person because I just like to see what's going on at the polling place. And I feel like it's such a part of the experience of being a United States citizen and exercising democracy in action. But this year, I thought dropping it off was a lot safer. And we were going to be here on Election Day in Arizona. And so I'll ask both of you, why is it important? Why are you voting in 2020? Where do we begin? We are voting in 2020 because it's the most crucial election of our lifetimes. I just cannot imagine another four years of this current administration. The future, it makes me concerned about the future of our three young adult daughters if our current president is reelected. So that's why I am voting, encouraging everyone I know to vote. And that's why we came to Arizona to get out the vote, monitor the polls, and make sure this election is as fairly run as possible. So Rich, tell us why you are voting in the general election 2020. Well, every general election, actually every election is super important. And that's why I got involved in politics when I was a young boy. And that's why I still remain very involved. I've never missed an election. But this year is really different. And the reason why I say that is that unlike last elections, I've never really questioned whether a democracy is gonna continue, whether we are crumbling and heading into a civil war. All these major questions that I've taken for granted when I was a young kid all the way until now are being questioned right now. And it's incredibly difficult, no matter what the policies of the Trump administration are, and they are not what I agree with at all, but what makes this a more important election is the lack of respect for the democratic institutions and things that we have taken for granted for so long. And what we realize is that many of the things that we take for granted, the ground rules that we've had for so many years, they were never written all in stone and people could actually get away with doing what they're doing. And here's what we're finding today that some of the major things that we have always believed in without hesitation are now being questioned. And if Trump wins the second term, and I think there's a decent chance that he will, unfortunately, I think that we are heading down a path of the end of, of America as we know it. In one sentence, I have to say this, this election feels like we are staving off an existential threat to our democracy. Well, you two have made a point of spending four days. Your mission begins 
is it on election day or will there be a pre-election day sort of monitoring function in Chandler, Arizona? We are actually in Phoenix. We got reassigned. Oh, okay. We got reassigned to Tempe, to the Marquee Theater in Tempe, because they felt that that was a more important place for us to be. So we're currently in Scottsdale, and we're going to be doing some literature drops in the Scottsdale area this afternoon, and also on Monday afternoon. And then on Tuesday, we're going to be at the polling place all day from 6 a.m. to 7 p.m. But what about if there's a long line? Aren't you interested in making sure that the safety of the space around voters in a long line is secured? Yes, we will be staying we'll stay if there's as long a as long we need line. To. Yeah. Okay. And I'm assuming there will be just because it's Tempe, Arizona, which is where ASU is. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of students voting, which is why they sent us there. And I assume that the lines will go and there'll probably be, you know, courts that intervene and say polls open until later. Uh, There might be. So we'll see. And is there specific training and what kinds of institutions train monitors? And you can break it down all you like that monitors versus poll watchers are the partisan participants who are looking to see who needs to show up and vote. But you're looking for certain parameters of constitutional security. So who is training you and what kind of training? And do you have to be an attorney to be a monitor? You do not have to be an attorney because we are working for an organization called Mission for Arizona that is run by the Democratic National Committee. And we did have online training. It was two hours. It was a live training webinar. So that's basically the groundwork. And what was your experience of that, Richard? Well, I haven't done as much of the background on it. I've done this before. Mm -hmm. Um, Most of the things that you need to do are really kind of basic and the laws of each state are slightly different. But really what we're trying to do is if there is a problem, it's more alerting, I think, authorities to that. And that's what we're gonna have to focus on. So there's an entity called the National Lawyers Guild. And I approached one yesterday at an action that was outside of the Orange County Honda Center, a super voting center that opened yesterday. So how do you distinguish what the Democratic National Committee is doing versus what the National Lawyers Guild functionaries are doing? I think that there's lots of groups that are doing different things. And my guess is is that what we're trying to do is flag problems that are being seen at the voting place. The National Lawyers Guild may have specific lawyers that are experts in election law. They may have had a different training that you may go to them for the specific thing if you're not registered at that location or if something else happens. It was a little odd to me when I approached him because he was not interested in the voting place at the Honda Center. The action that I was covering was far flung in this huge parking lot at the, it was the corner of the major streets. So there was no interaction with any kind of voters. I approached him and he would not tell me who he was. He said, I can't tell you who my client is. It was kind of odd. So yeah, exactly. Well, is there any other part of your involvement in 2020 you would like to mention as we draw down in our time together? One other thing I'd like to add about our work is that There's a system called LBJ that's online. And if there's an incident at a polling place, we log it into the system and they collect all that data for potential litigation. It's a special app 
for poll monitoring. Oh, okay. Monitors. And the DNC has been using it through several elections from when I've done this in the past in Florida. And basically it's just a data point. So if there are problems at different polling places, they collect all the data and can use it if there will be future litigation. I was going to mention one thing, which is, you know, I was listening to this yesterday, but it really emphasized the point again, that for those people that are listening to this, that think there's not that big of a difference, do I really need to vote? It is such enormous differences depending on who you get elected. And yesterday we were listening to Al Franken, former senator from Minnesota, who won his election by 312 votes. Matter of fact, he wasn't even seated during the beginning of the session because it was still in the courts. But he ended up winning by 312 votes, and he turned out to be the 60th vote for the Affordable Care Act. If it wasn't for the fact that he was there, they wouldn't have had that passed. So it has incredible power to vote. And you really, to me, can't complain about anything if you haven't voted. Indeed. Well, my last question is, I thought it was interesting because I think of the perception of the asymmetry of the kind of legal portfolio to defend either political party. But I had heard some weeks ago that the Biden campaign was putting out a lot of new resources for a legal team to challenge whatever they thought they needed to challenge. Do either one of you want to comment on the importance of symmetrical legal kind of representation when it seemed to be so skewed in the year 2000 when it was such a hot mess? Well, in the year 2000, you had one party that clearly wanted the election more than the other. At least you had two candidates that wanted it more than the other two candidates. And that turned out to prevail because they got on the ground early, challenged things at the certain level, and as a matter of fact, was much more strategic in what they did. The Democratic candidates of Lieberman and Gore sat back and let it happen, in my opinion. I think that that was a lesson that Democrats Mm -hmm. learned, and they will not repeat that ever again. And I think in this case, we are grinding in, hopefully, and I'm hoping that this will be the case that this will not be a thing that we leave anything. We have the resources to actually fight all of this. Since then, the Democratic Party has been so much more proactive in poll monitoring and in making sure that almost every polling place is monitored so that every vote counts in swing states. Yes. Well, I'm so glad that you were available to call in from Tempe, Arizona. And I thank you for your rendering this all-important service to us all over the country, monitoring election sites. Thank you, Sharon Rosenlieb and Rich Lieb, for being on Ask a Voter today. Thank you for having us, Claudia. Thank you, Claudia. was my wrap. Next on these airwaves is Fast Forward with SoCal New Waiver. Make sure your friends, families, co-workers vote. Check your county's registrar voters for all the information that you need. Orange County voters, you can register right on this election day at any of Orange County's vote centers. Drop boxes open till 8 p.m. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. Let's do this, USA. USA.